Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. I'm going to be honest, we thought we were going to have a real episode this week, but 2023 is just not kicking off the way we wanted it to. So to whatever extent you have some spare thoughts and prayers lying around, we could use a few, and we do greatly appreciate all the support of our longtime listeners. That being said, we do have a great collection of articles for you today from the archives on the subject of dogs and cats. I've been told it's more common to say cats and dogs, but as will soon become apparent in this episode, I'm a dog person, and since I'm the one who edits them, I'm the one who gets to name them. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. All right. Well, this article from the BBC is called The Hidden Reason Processed Pet Foods Are So Addictive. Whoa. And the short answer is, of course, chemicals that they deliberately put in there. But (laughs) the long answer is actually pretty surprising. So dog food was first invented in 1860 by a lightning rod salesman named James Spratt. Uh, uh. And he had traveled from his hometown in Ohio to Liverpool, England to sell his lightning rods. And as he was staring out over the docks one day, he noticed a group of stray dogs chowing down on some discarded hardtack biscuits. And this was a revelation to him for two reasons. One, hardtack is nasty. It's a basic slab of flour and water that was created to feed soldiers on the front line. Mm-hmm. And they were famously hard enough to crack a tooth on. The oldest surviving piece of hardtack is currently on display at the Kronborg Castle in Denmark. And it was baked in 1851 and shows no signs of spoiling. Hmm. So wow. these things are basically glue. <laughs> and they made soldiers eat it and everybody hated it. But these dogs liked it. Secondly, up until that point, no one had ever considered that dogs might have food preferences. They were just sort of culturally given scraps from whatever their humans were eating or left to fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. So Spratt went back to America and developed the meat fibrine dog cake, which was a biscuit-like concoction of beetroot, vegetables, grains, and beef of dubious origins, the article said. (laughs) And he specifically claimed that it met all of a dog's nutritional needs in one handy package. They would never need to eat anything else. And the claim was actually a little dubious because we now know that different breeds can develop different digestive abilities based on what they're already used to eating. The most striking example is the husky, which was traditionally fed on nothing but seal meat by Inuit hunter-gatherers in Greenland and Canada. And when the British Antarctic Survey actually brought a pack of huskies down to the South Pole for their early expeditions, they initially fed them on Spratt's meat fibrine dog cakes. But the dogs got sick and couldn't ever get used to it until they ultimately gave up and went back to feeding them seal meat. So the idea that there's one food that every dog can eat, obviously false, but this was the first time they were ever sort of considering this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We've also bred generations of huskies now down to Western standards so that they can eat regular kibble. But the thing about kibble is that in the U.S. and the EU, in order to be considered a complete dog food, it has to adhere to certain standards for nutrition, which means that all the different brands are nutritionally almost identical. Quality-wise, they may vary, but a question of, like, how many carbs, how many grams of fat, whatever, it's all the same. Hmm. Human processed food isn't expected to be the one thing you eat all the time, so manufacturers can add extra fat or sugar to make their product tastier and kind of give it an edge in the marketplace. But you Mm -hmm. really can't do that with dog food. Hmm. So instead, the pet food industry has gone all in on palatants, 
which are basically just artificial flavorings like you find in human food. But there are some key differences in animal palatants versus human palatants. So first, animal palatants are often more about smell than taste. Obviously, most people know that dogs and cats both have a better sense of smell than we do, but the flip side is they actually have fewer taste receptors than humans do. Hmm. So some animal palatants actually have no flavor at all. They're just perfume for dog food, basically. But that can be tricky because the smells that carnivorous animals like best are things like putrescine and cadaverine, which you might be able to tell by their names, are really unpleasant smells to humans. Marion Nestle, a professor of nutrition at New York University, says pet food manufacturers have to make it disgusting enough so that the animal will eat it, but not so disgusting that the owners won't buy it. Wow. <laughs> it's a tricky balance. Yeah. yeah. There are also some pretty striking differences between cat and dog palatants because dogs have been living side by side with humans since about 40,000 years ago, but cats were only domesticated around 4,300 years ago. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that dogs have been eating human food for a long time and have thus evolved the ability to taste various carbohydrates, including sugar. Cats, on the other hand, have not. So if you leave a donut out, a dog will definitely go for it, while a cat is much more likely to ignore it in favor of cheese or some other food that it would prefer. Mm -hmm. Cats, as well as other wild carnivores, show the most preference for umami, as well as kokumi, which has been proposed as a sixth flavor that's described more as a richness or a thickness in certain foods that humans Ooh. are, frankly, not as good at detecting. Like, it's oh. hard for us to describe because we can't actually taste it very well. Unlike umami and all the rest, kokumi hasn't been linked to a particular set of compounds yet, but it's believed that cats can pick it up with certain receptors in their mouths that evolved to detect calcium. And based on what flavors cats are most drawn to, they think it's highly present in scallops, soy sauce, shrimp paste, yeast, and beer. Which mm. I've never seen a cat drink beer, but apparently they really like it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the suspected kokumi compounds is a chemical called pyrophosphate, which is actually in a number of human foods as a preservative, but is also known in pet food circles as cat crack. They absolutely love it, and if you look at your cat food's ingredients, it is almost certainly in there. Huh. Unfortunately, we are now at the point where flavor science has gotten too good, and just like humans, there is an epidemic of pet obesity. So on the one hand, as the article points out, this is largely a problem of people choosing to feed their pets too much, since they're obviously not opening the cans themselves. On the other hand, one of the reasons pet owners feed their pets so much is because the pets are demanding food all day long which is probably due to the fact that we've made it so darn tasty for them. Mm -hmm. There's also environmental concerns to think about. One study from New Zealand estimated that the planetary cost of keeping a dog was roughly twice that of a medium-sized SUV. What? Wow. I think It's because they're carnivores, not that they're, like, polluting the air <laughs> as they walk <laughs> around. But the good news is that palatants can actually help that situation a lot because if the dogs are going to love it no matter what they're eating— Pets can pretty easily be transitioned onto more sustainable proteins like insects. Huh. You know, I would be interested in eating insect-based stuff if it had, you know, all the flavorings that make it better for us. Yeah, there's a company in Austin that sells cricket flour, and they even, like, have pre-made cricket flour cookies. I haven't eaten one, so I don't know if they're Ooh. good, but I know they're out there at, like, you know, the hippie places. <laughs> <laughs> but not so hippie that you're vegan, because obviously insect consumption is not vegan. That's right. They do not consent to being eaten. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
Well, realclearscience.com is not afraid to ask the tough questions, right? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Why do cats have belly pouches? Well, yeah. What is a belly pouch? <laughs> like, they're not like kangaroos. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little hangy down part, you know? Oh, they're just fat. Well, real clear science may want to dispute that dog lover. We can tell who the dog owner is in this group here. Um, and yes, I am a little bit defensive because my dear first cat, uh, I had her for 18 years and swore, you know, she's not fat. She's just domestic. But turns out there is a scientific explanation for the little swingy belly pooch that most cat owners are familiar with. Okay. So even though the part of a cat's underside that swings when it walks may look like a paunch, it's not actually a tummy at all. Hmm. That bit of skin, fur, and fat is a protective layer called the primordial pouch, and it's positioned along the length of a cat's belly. These pouches are perfectly normal and healthy, says Jose Arce, the president-elect of the American Veterinary Medical Association. But they do vary greatly in size. Some are almost undetectable. And it's easiest to see a small pouch when it flops back and forth as cat runs. Mm -hmm. And we have three main theories as to why cats have these primordial pouches. So the first theory is that it protects the internal organs in a fight by adding an extra layer between claws or teeth and the feline's insides. Mm -hmm. All those really precious organs can stay protected because there's basically a little bit of padding there, right? Mm. So the second theory is that the pouch may allow cats to move faster. Because it stretches as the felines run, it gives them extra flexibility and the ability to go farther with each bound, which are qualities that certainly come in handy mm. when you're trying to evade predators or catch prey. Because as we know, mm. cats are both predator and prey, depending on what the other animal in the mix is. Sure. And then the final possibility is that this pouch is an extra space for storing food after a big meal. I mean, this is one that, <laughs> you know, I probably could have come up with. But, you know, obviously in the wild, cats are not getting two square meals a day. They just eat when they can, when they have a successful hunt, and they may store that fat from a large kill in the pouch for sustenance days later. Hmm. Another cool fact about this is that primordial pouches are not just unique to domestic cats, because big cats like lions and tigers have them and for the same reasons. In house cats, the pooch will start to develop around six months of age in both males and females. So if you're curious about whether your cat's just got a plain old normal swingy pooch, or it's a little bit pudgy, you want to look at the cat's shape. So if you're looking at the cat from a bird's eye view above the cat, obese cats are going to have a rounder body than a healthy weight cat with a large pouch. And the belly of an obese cat comes from the top of the underside and continues all the way down, whereas the primordial pouch starts further down and is skewed towards the back legs, kind of like a saggy pants situation as opposed to like, <laughs> you know, a full fat suit. I like the distinction you made earlier. I haven't gained pandemic weight. I've become domestic. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I really like that. Distinction. You've just gained yeah. a protective layer if anyone is going to try to go after you. Yeah, I'm no longer wild. It's funny because I feel like I myself have grown much more feral during the pandemic. Right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I will also say that mine is a primordial pouch as well. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
This article comes to us from Inverse.com, and it's titled, Why Are Pets So Good for Mental Health? Science Explained. All right. <laughs> Which, you know, I think we probably have a pretty good idea, but it's some nice pet stories. Yeah, I'll take all the validation that I can get. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's no secret this past year has taken a toll on our collective mental health. As the article says, it's been a lot. But for millions of people around the world, there's one factor that's helped keep them afloat, which is their pets. Yep. The benefit of a pet is something you might feel, but it's harder to explain exactly why you feel that way. So numerous scientific studies suggest the mental health benefits of companion animals, particularly for those already experiencing mental health concerns pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. However, this human-pet relationship may not always lead to long-term mental health benefits, a study on companion animal relationships during lockdown found that adolescent dog owners were still lonelier and had fewer social attachments to people during the pandemic. So pets were a highly used strategy for coping with stress, but they still couldn't replace interactions with others. Sure. Mm. Michael Manning from Murphy, North Carolina, recently lost a beloved five-year-old dog to congestive heart failure. Aww. However, Manning found a way to move forward when he and his wife, Lynn, began caring for two eight-week-old Belgian Turveran puppies, mm. Stein and Versingatorix, during the <laughs> pandemic. Wait, I'm sorry, that's the dog's name? Yes, these are the dog's names. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Stein lived up to his namesake, which is a Belgian word meaning constant and steadfast, okay. as did Versingatorix, or nickname Rix, much uh, easier to say. There you go. Who is named for a Celtic warrior. Oh, All right. And Manning says the two pups gave me a focus and a reason to get up in the morning. And now the second pup with each passing week looks more and more like the one we lost. Yeah. Peggy Thompson from Napa, California, has a similar story about her mixed border collie terrier dog, which she adopted from a pound four years ago. Thompson says my pet surely helped me in that she forced me to keep a schedule. She knows when it is time to get up and time to eat. Without her, I would have been tempted to sleep too much. Mm hmm. So it's not just pets benefiting humans. It's likely that animals also benefited from extended care during the pandemic. Mm. Sure. As they may see their pet more often, many pet owners have been more observant of their pet's behavior and their needs. Mm. Cynthia Stinger from Mount Laurel, New Jersey, has a beloved cat, Hannibal. Hannibal is a domestic black shorthair cat who spent the first six months of his life in a no-kill animal shelter. Stinger says, when I brought him home three years ago, he was very skittish and would hide under the bed at the slightest provocation. He slowly became less anxious over time, but the pandemic really kickstarted his socialization, Stinger says. In summation, constantly being around my scaredy cat has made him much more social and accepting of my presence. However, he still hates the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> well, who doesn't, really? I'm not a fan. So I know this is tangentially related, but the new kitten that I got and adopted, I think, last June, not afraid of the vacuum cleaner. Hmm. Like, he's not thrilled with it, but he's not traumatized hmm. or terrified by it. It is both amazing and unusual. Yeah. Just thought I'd throw that out. They're evolving. <laughs> Our primary defense is gone. <laughs> you joke about that, but I have had kind of a running theory or possibly a premise for a sci-fi book, which is that because people have been adopting animals in record numbers, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a mass toxoplasmosis infection mm. happening Ooh. worldwide where cats eventually take over as the primary species on the planet. They'll probably do a better job than we will. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
it might be heading that way. You know, the article continues, that doesn't mean it's all been sunshine and rainbows, however. For example, one study examining the effects of the lockdown in Spain found that pets showed signs of behavioral change that were consistent with stress, with dogs that had pre-existing behavioral problems being the most affected. Mm. So pets, especially younger ones, thrive on daily routines, and COVID-19 significantly disrupted those routines, Mm. leading to some pets getting fatter due to lack of exercise (laughs) or excessive snacking. Yeah, haven't we all? I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Next link. Next link. All right. We know that superbugs are a thing thanks to our dependence on antibiotics that's been getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to sound alarmist, but according to Gizmodo, (laughs) raw dog food might be driving the spread of dangerous superbugs. Because some drug-resistant bacteria from dog food are the same as those found in hospital patients. Wow. Some scientists from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention have advised against the burgeoning trend of feeding raw food to pets because of the ability to spread germs like E. coli, salmonella, and listeria. All things that we're always warned about when it comes to handling raw meat Mm -hmm. meant for human consumption, right? (laughs) Yeah, so I guess this isn't an issue of, like, it's lower quality to begin with. It's just that nobody should be eating all raw everything. Right, and even if it's just any raw is kind of the impression that I'm getting here. The team apparently found upsetting, which is the word they used, upsetting Uh levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in dozens of dog food products. The caveat here is this was mostly reviewed in pork. Portugal. So, you know, I wouldn't say Americans, you can relax because uh, no, no, we should not. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, drug resistant bacteria are a significant health risk because they make minor scrapes and infections way more dangerous and sometimes even life threatening. Hmm. Figures provided by the World Health Organization show that globally around 700,000 people each year die from these superbugs. And it's a problem that's only going to get worse because the World Health Organization estimates that By 2050, about 10 million people will die each year from multidrug-resistant germs. So there are a lot of varieties that raw food can come in, but of these samples, 54% contain traces of enterococci, which is a bacterium present in human intestines and the vaginal tract, and also in soil and water. Mm -hmm. But in 2017, a particular strain of enterococci was responsible for about 54,000 infections and about 5,400 deaths. And this is in the U.S. now. So all raw dog food sampled in the study contained this multidrug-resistant enterococci, whereas only three non-raw samples contained the bacterium. Over 40% of the enterococci bacteria they found was found to be resistant to common antibiotics as well as last resort antibiotics, which Mm. are obviously a little bit stronger. So does this mean I can't let my dog lick me on the mouth anymore? I mean, as I do, I let him kiss me. I'm, <laughs> I'm a gross person. I've, I've heard that getting kissed on the mouth by a dog is a lot cleaner than getting kissed on the mouth by a cat, since oh. cats definitely lick their own buttholes. Oh, mm. that's true. My dogs don't do that. <laughs> they can't reach. Maybe not as frequently, but yeah, it, it can be done. I've, yeah. And what was that bacteria called? Enterococci. I'm guessing Enterococci. on the spelling, but it's E-N-T-E-R-O-C-O. O-C-C-I. See, that sounds like a nice Italian pasta. And it's upsetting <laughs> that it kills us. Well, I'll admit the double C led me to think that I was lending it an Italian accent. It could mm-hmm. be intero cosicai. I don't know. Ah, I see. I see. <laughs> but pasta good. Wash your hands anyway. It's a good right. habit. Just Even wash your hands. Even when you're eating all. pasta. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Fair, fair. 
<laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one comes from the one zero blog at medium.com. It's uh, maybe hopeful. I don't know. I'm not crossing my fingers yet. Let me ask you this. Do you have allergies? I do. I have cedar fever as a good Texan who's been here a while. Right, everybody has. does. Mm-hmm. And I've got, I think, dust mites and I think dust mites and cedar are my biggies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a lot of sort of just nasal. I'm always stuffed up all the time, but I've never actually been tested for what I'm allergic to because I feel like like mm-hmm. you, if they come back and tell me it's cedar, it's like, well, that doesn't do me any good because everywhere <laughs> that knowledge helps me not at all. So yep. <laughs> I just continue to suffer. But the specific allergy to this article is talking about is cat allergies. And there are, in fact, a whole lot of people, apparently, who are horribly allergic to cats or their children are very allergic to cats. And they love cats Mm -hmm. and they desperately want a cat, but they can't because of allergies. So there is this sort of hole in the market for a hypoallergenic cat. You know, they do actually have some hypoallergenic breeds of dogs where the dogs have uh, literal hair instead of fur. There's sort of a biological difference and the fur mm-hmm. creates this dander that you can be allergic to, but the hair doesn't. So if you have a, I think a purebred poodle is one of the hypoallergenic species, you can have a dog even if you have dog allergies. And that actually is true mm-hmm. of a lot of things, it turns out. An allergy is always to a very specific protein. So, if, for example, people with peanut allergies can eat things cooked in peanut oil because it's lipids only. Unless it's been contaminated with some of the protein, pure lipids of the thing that you're allergic to do not cause an allergic reaction. And Mm. in most cases, the thing that you're allergic to is not cats in general. It's a very particular protein in cats, right? And Mm -hmm. so, like, for example... In their saliva, right? Right. And so, for example, like you said, you're allergic to dust. It turns... You're not actually allergic to dust. You are allergic to the poop of dust mites that live in dust. (gasps) That's that's just a fun little fact there for you. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, who would not be allergic to something that... Exactly. Right. (laughs) But but because of this, they basically have isolated the exact protein in cats that causes an allergic reaction. It's called FEL-D1, FEL for feline, I assume. And so if theoretically you could create a cat that simply didn't create this protein, you would have a hypoallergenic Uh cat. And there have been a lot of different attempts. They note that back in 2000, a biotech company named Alerca claimed to have bred a strain of cats naturally that had less of the protein. They just sort of tried to aim the cats by breeding into cats that were producing less of it. And they advertised them heavily. They sold them for between $4,000 and (gasps) $28,000 each. But uh, it turns out it was just a scam. Like, oh, people, no. people who spent these thousands of dollars on these cats, they got them and they had massive allergic reactions. They were completely allergic oh. to these cats. And in 2013, an ABC News expose tested these cats that Alerca was selling and said they have just as much of the protein as any other random cat on the street. Oh. Which, at that point, most owners had already discovered, but they couldn't get their money back. Right. And it was a big fraud. So uh, that was Ugh. that was out. But now we have this lovely thing called CRISPR, which... Uh, Oh, that's right. The gene splicer. Right. And I had to have kind of a review. I didn't really understand, I think, what CRISPR was. The idea of CRISPR is that you have a molecule that can go in and attach to a specific line of DNA and snip it out. Mm -hmm. And so you're basically Mm -hmm. you're creating this drug cocktail that is tailored for a specific sequence of genes. And then you inject it and it goes because your DNA is in every cell. So it has to go throughout Mm -hmm. your whole body and snip that bit of DNA out of your whole body. And so it is It is something that works to a varying degree for various things. But Indoor Biotechnologies is working on a CRISPR-based drug that will snip the protein from the living cats, 
right? So you don't <gasps> have to breed a new cat. You could take your existing cat, jab it a few times, however many times is necessary, theoretically, Aww. and make your cat no longer produce this protein. They've gotten tissue samples from about 50 different cats, and they looked for patterns in the section of DNA that was known to code for the Fel-D1 mm -hmm. protein. They sort of isolated one. So far, they've gotten through individual cell tests where it can definitely go into a single cell and snip that mm -hmm. DNA out and the cell continues to live. Yeah, but an live. entire complex living organism. <gasps> right. It's a they've got a ways to go. They next need to do tissue samples where it can go through many cells in like a little chunk of a biopsy. And then step mm -hmm. three would be a whole cat. Now, they note that they do not have any idea yet whether this bit of DNA is important for anything else. Right. Like these are sometimes the mm -hmm. uh, the accidental side effects of genetic modification is you just take out right. one little bit of DNA and it turns out, oh, that's the thing that gave them fur at all. And now you have right. hairless cats or that's right. the thing that grew a liver and now they're horribly ill and they can't live. We have no idea what we're playing with. And so they freely admit this could all come crashing down when they actually get into full animal trials. Awesome. So it's it's got a long way to go. We're nowhere near having an injection that can make your cat hypoallergenic. But science is working on a lot of different stuff. And this is one of the things that they're working on, apparently. I'm stoked to hear it. My husband is pretty allergic to cats, but it turns out he's just as allergic to dogs. Oh, no. He refuses to live life without a dog, which I am fully behind. So he's just gonna, he just puts up with it? He just puts up with it. He mm -hmm. just kind of suffers. But if there's hope on the horizon, that, yeah. is, that is good news. Because we've also had like friends and relatives who are so severely cat allergic that they weren't able to come and even just visit in our home because right. that, obviously that, that protein is going to be everywhere. But right. I guess so is dust mite poop. So Right, right. Well, that's what they said is a lot of these environmental allergies, most of them, there's really no way to avoid them completely. You know, you're just sort of at the whim of how bad is this environment versus, you know, don't go into the right. house where a cat lives, but there's cats wandering around outside. I mean, you're always running the risk of exposure if you're that sensitive. Mm -hmm. They're cute. They might be worth it. They're so worth it. Oh, they're so worth it. <laughs> I'm biased, but they're so worth That's it. That's right. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, Live Science is asking, why were the ancient Egyptians obsessed with cats? Hmm? Yeah, I'm assuming your answer is because they're awesome. Like, why wouldn't you be? <laughs> there are. And, and there's a little bit of a content warning here if people are cat lovers because we are talking about mummification and some of the uh, industry around that. So be mm. forewarned. But we know that the ancient Egyptians are just famous for their fondness of all things cat-like, right? They've got cat-themed artifacts like statues to jewelry. And we know that they mummified countless cats and even created the world's first known pet cemetery, which was a nearly 2,000-year-old burial ground that largely holds cats wearing remarkable iron and beaded collars. Hmm. So we're thinking that much of this reverence is because the ancient Egyptians thought their gods and rulers had cat-like qualities, according to a 2018 exhibition on the importance of cats in ancient Egypt held at the Smithsonian National Museum of Asian Art in Washington, D.C. So specifically, they saw cats as possessing a duality of desirable temperaments. So on the one hand, they can be protective and loyal and nurturing. But on the other hand, they can be pugnacious, independent, and fierce. Mm. Pretty godlike qualities if you're familiar <laughs> with, you know, a lot of different families of mythology here, right? So mm -hmm. to the ancient Egyptians, this made cats feel like special creatures worthy of attention. So that might be why they built these big statues. For example, the Sphinx is perhaps the most famous example of such a monument. But to be honest, historians are not exactly sure why the Egyptians went to the trouble of carving it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, powerful goddess Sekhmet 
was depicted as having the head of a lion on the body of a woman, and she was known as a protective deity, particularly during moments of transition like dawn and dusk. Another goddess, Bastet, was often represented as a lion or a cat, and、hmm. they thought that cats were sacred to her. In daily life, cats were also loved because they obviously hunted mice and snakes. Some Egyptians would even name or nickname their children after cats, including the name Mit, which means cat for girls.、Hmm. It's not really clear when domesticated cats turned up in Egypt, but we have found cat and kitten burials dating as far back as 3800 BC. Wow! Sadly, much research has suggested that this obsession was not always kind and doting, and there's evidence of a more sinister side to the ancient Egyptians' feline fascination. Apparently, there were likely entire industries devoted to the breeding of millions of kittens, specifically to be killed and mummified, so people could be buried alongside them.、Um, mm. This mostly happened around 700 BC and AD 300. In a study published last year in the journal Scientific Reports, scientists carried out X-ray micro-CT scanning on mummified animals, and so when they got their results back, the researchers realized the creature was a lot smaller than they had anticipated. So it was a very young cat. But they just hadn't realized before doing the scanning because so much of the mummy—about fifty percent of it—was just the wrapping itself. Right. So when they, they saw it up it. on the screen, they realized it was young when it died. So apparently,、mm. it had been less than five months old, which、Aww. was a bit of a shock to the researchers, right? Yeah. I mean, you would think people would want to be buried with their pet cat. Like this idea、yeah. of like, let me just go and grab a brand new cat and then bury me with it. That says to me that the cat wasn't honored so much as like a tool. Yes. Like they imagine they're going to be chased by. Rats in the afterlife. They feel like they need a cat there with them. I don't know.、That's、yeah,、weird. you're not off the mark there. They're thinking that you know, obviously, the practice of sacrificing cats was not a rare thing. They were often、mm. reared for that purpose, and they even added it may have been fairly industrial, where you had farms dedicated to selling cats.、Mm. Not a lot has changed, right?、Yeah. So instead of having <laughs> backyard breeders for companion pets, they were thinking it was a means to appease or even seek help from deities in addition to spoken prayers. So. Kind of traditional animal sacrifice. I mean, you know, it's like you're a house guest. You got to bring a bottle of wine, but in this case, you bring a cat.、Oh. And I guess in that case, the logic is like, oh well, who wants an old cat? You want to bring a kitten. That's the cute gift, right? Oh, so. so horrible. And it makes sense too, because like I've seen some of the mummified cats, and you think like, wow, someone got like you said buried with their you know longtime companion. No, it turns out it's fifty percent packaging, like getting a bag of Doritos and figuring out it's like half full of air. What a bummer! Oh no! <laughs> I know, I know. I I had to really kind of callous my heart to this one because I was like, yeah, cat worship. Oh, backyard breeders. How、yeah. little has changed. And we're so much more advanced. We only put them through pneumatic tubes. I mean, come on, that's an improvement. <laughs> oh, oh, this has been a rough episode for cat fans. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> Uh, next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from the Guardian, and it's titled "The Hidden World of Cats: What Our Feline <gasps> Friends Are Doing When We're Not Looking." Tell me, I'm dying to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is by Siren Kale, written in the first person, but I'll render it in the third. A little bit longer, but it's a fun one because it's all about cats. So, as Siren prepared to write this piece, her three-year-old cat Larry had been missing for 24 hours. She'd checked under the bins, posted in a community Facebook group, and Googled variations of "lost cat, how long normal before come home" all day. <laughs> Eventually, of course, Larry did swagger home, weary from another adventure on the Savannah or、uh, Lewisham, South London. But where had he been? 
To find out, Saren contacted attractive manufacturers of GPS trackers for cats and dogs. It kindly volunteered to provide Saren with some units, and next she recruited five cat owners, all curious to know about what their charges are up to when out and about. So now we have a meet the cats section where we say, <laughs> feel free here to imagine a slow motion montage from a Guy Ritchie film. We've got Pablo, a bossy two-year-old short hair from Bricksworth, Northamptonshire. Pablo is owned by Andrea Franklin, a 52-year-old sales manager. Bluebell, a British short hair blue from Buckfastly Devon, who purrs like an engine, loves frozen Licky Licks treats, and went missing for three days last year, leaving her owner, 70-year-old retired personal assistant Diane Powell, distraught. She's never haughty on purpose, Powell says. (laughs) And then Marina, a vocal four-year-old tabby from Acton, West London, who is the terror of the neighborhood. Her owner, Ahmed El Bui, says, Sometimes the neighbors say on Facebook that Marina is bullying the other cats. <laughs> Zaki, a free-spirited two-year-old ragdoll who three times has got stuck up a tree in the garden of his owner, Nada Tatani Mabwa. And last but not least, we have PC, a muscular serial killer from Hartwell, <laughs> Northamptonshire. He once disappeared for three months before turning up alive and well in a nearby forest. His owner, Will Benzie, said, most days he catches something. Mice, birds, once a pretty sizable rabbit. Hmm. So imagine like a dramatic bong here. Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Siri texts her boyfriend with the green vomit face emoji. He's crossing the track. She lives behind a busy railway track and trains pretty much run constantly into central London. But the track is about 30 feet up from ground level. She didn't think Larry could climb that high, but he can't. Hmm. Larry is also crossing streets around Siren's house, although he does not go further than a few hundred meters because she lives in a densely populated neighborhood with other cats. John Bradshaw, the author of Cat Sense, says many cats will self-limit how far they go. They don't like challenging other cats or being challenged. Same. Yeah. (laughs) Cats are territorial with established patches they defend. Territory is the most important thing to cats. Cats learn to share space and avoid one another to make it work, as it can be damaging to fight all the time. By limiting himself to the area directly around Siren's house, Larry, it seems, is a lover rather than a fighter. But the same cannot be said for Pablo. A flabbergasted Franklin said, He's traveled four and a half miles. I genuinely thought he'd just be sitting in some old lady's living room all day. (laughs) And then he goes into different gardens. He seems to have a few hangout spots. Franklin says, I think he has a crew. (laughs) <laughs> so cute tuesday dum dum yeah <laughs> pablo is getting more brazen crossing a busy a road into a country park it's notorious for speeding there franklin says but franklin believes it's wrong to keep pablo indoors and in this view in the uk franklin is actually in the majority unlike in the u.s where domesticated cats typically stay indoors in the uk just 26 percent of british cats are indoor only hmm Not everyone is enamored of this. Bradshaw says there is an anti-cat lobby, and they're very vocal people. (laughs) People who enjoy their gardens and allotments get seriously fed up with the cat crap everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's the hunting. Professor Robbie McDonald, an expert in companion animal ecology at the University of Exeter, says predation and hunting are natural attributes of cats. In countries where cats are not a native species, such Mm -hmm. as Australia and New Zealand, they can have a devastating impact on wildlife. Bradshaw says, I do feel that cats are an easy target. 
skyscrapers kill more birds than cats do, but you don't see people standing outside the factories where glass is made saying, you're bird killers. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, Wednesday. (laughs) Marina has been on rambunctious form. El Bui says she's been harassing a few neighbors for food. They went to a nearby construction site and spent the night there. (laughs) Over in Bricksworth, Pablo's hunting has ramped up. This morning he went out without breakfast, Franklin said. He's obviously getting his food somewhere else. He nipped home at lunch and brought a dormouse with him. McDonald says, if the cat is under your management, I hesitate to say (laughs) control because no one really controls a cat. You can work out ways to reduce the propensity of the cat to kill. Bells on collars work, as does switching cats to a premium, high-protein food diet and giving them mental stimulation by playing with them in the morning. Changing the cat's food can reduce the amount of wildlife they kill by over a third and playing with your cat more than a quarter. Hmm. Moving on to Thursday, one cat has slipped his collar. (gasps) Benzi says, I came out of the house and her collar was on the gatepost. Oh, no. I feel like that's a message from PC. Yeah. Stop tracking me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a dead horse head in the bed. She she wants you to know. (laughs) All the cat owners or guardians, as Kelsey calls them, have rapidly become addicted to following their cats on the app, Siren included. It's so time-consuming, Franklin complains. I'll be trying to work, and then I think, ooh, I wonder what he's doing. And (laughs) I want to pause, because, like, this sounds so much to me like torn-up partners just finding out their spouses are just, like, going out on them, Uh but they're tracking them over GPS, and they can't stop watching. (laughs) He went to someone else's house and ate food. How dare he? I know. God. He got pet in the park. (laughs) So... Powell has been analyzing Bluebell's tracking data and noticed something unexpected, which is that if we go out of the house, she says, she comes in. It's almost like she's looking after the house for us. And Mabawa is using her newfound knowledge of Zaki's whereabouts to steal a march on her wayward pet. After seeing on the tracker that Zaki often visited the grounds of a local care home, she decided to walk down. I saw him between some bushes and he looked at me and was shocked. (laughs) We looked at each other for a while and he was embarrassed. He looked as if he'd been found out. (laughs) And then finally, Friday. In Hartwell, Benzie has observed PC spending an unlikely amount of time in his neighbor's back garden. And Benzie went and asked her, have you been putting food out? She smiled and says, yes, I've been putting it out back so you can't see it. (laughs) Benzie also suspects that PC is getting a third or even fourth daily meal from the occupants of a row of houses about a mile away. After his morning visit to the coal yard, PC tends to wind up there in the afternoon. (laughs) When Bradshaw was consulting on a pioneering 2012 Horizon documentary that tracked cats, he found it was commonplace for cats to be fed multiple times a day. He says there was one cat that had four owners. Cats are opportunists. Mm Mm-hmm. And as Siren wraps up the article, Larry is sitting next to her. And although Siren has loved watching him perambulate around her South London home like a dowager countess, she's relegated Larry's tracking device to a drawer. If he wants to come back, he will. (laughs) Oh, the definition of love. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it does definitely seem like it veers into the whole like the helicopter parenting kind of thing. Like you get addicted (laughs) to knowing where they are at all times. And I can see how that would be super distracting and ultimately stressful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would not want to know. And I mean, I've had cats that, you know, went away and never came back. And honestly, thinking about like, what if the cat just never came back and it was on the GPS tracker and you just <gasps> see it go away? I mean, you get to watch it with its new family. Like you yeah. see, like, oh, it's in Oregon now. Oh, <laughs> well, look, if humans get Instagram and we can stalk our exes, then yeah. we can go take our pets back from those cats. <laughs> <laughs> 
producers. <laughs> Don't you know he has a fish allergy? You homewrecker. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for this bonus episode. We thank you again for joining us, and we do hope to be back in full force sometime very soon. As always, if you want to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.